we continue with 1 Samuel. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote destruction to all they have. Do not spare them, but kill them, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Samuel summoned the people and numbered them in Telam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Malachites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not destroy them utterly. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the, word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from, the fo from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed and went on to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Malachites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote destruction to the sinners and the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil that you do and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of things, 
devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is in the sin of divination and presumption is in iniquity and adultery. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to the neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back and after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me, to, bring me Agag, the king of the Malachites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord of Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house of Gabeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and Saul regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your, um, your guidance as we are prepared to worship you this morning. Thank you for leading us to sing songs about your victory, about the cross. Lord, we, as we approach this table which has been set out for us, the, the Lord's Supper, Lord, it's our desire that we would think about the cross, remember you this morning. Father, I'm grateful for your word that teaches us sufficient to know about you and to know how to have that relationship that Gene spoke about earlier, a relationship with you, a sinner now in communion with God. Father, I pray that as we meditate upon your word now that has been read and now expounded, I pray, Father, that the result would be holiness. Lord, that you would, um, as we pray often when we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would examine our heart, and as we examine our heart, actually, as you just make us aware of um, fallen shortness and sin in our heart, Lord, that we would take the opportunity that's designed in the service to confess, to turn to you, Lord, and to plead for forgiveness. 
And Father, I pray that the, the wealth of Scripture might be applied to our minds as we think about the good news of Jesus, that you have won the victory for us in the cross, and now if we put our trust in you, Lord, we can be forgiven, we can have eternal life, relationship with you. Um, all, the, all the effect of sin um, can be reversed in Christ, and I've, I pray that we would gain that for ourselves um, in our time in your word this morning and around this table. So bless this moment, I pray. Amen. Good morning. Um, how's everyone doing on this uh, beautiful spring morning? Everyone okay? Spring day today. And uh, I look forward to expounding this little passage for you um, as we move on in this journey. If you want the previous sermons of the series, because I see there's quite a few guests with us today. Um, we just launched our brand new website last weekend. And so um, these messages are available online now. And so you can just go there and you can promote them to friends and family overseas and uh, enjoy the series. Um, just catch up if you, if you need to from the past. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Um, good to have a Bible open in front of you just to follow along. If you um, don't have one, just grab a, a pew Bible there or um, look on your phone real quick, Google it, and uh, let's look at this chapter together. The first point I'd like to make from this passage as we prepare for the Lord's Supper is rare silence breeds devotion. Rare silence breeds devotion. Um, we have to admit that silence is rare these days, amen? It's hard to find a gap where we can find a silent moment. And even in preaching this chapter, I've taken uh, time to intentionally find a gap this week, and it's been tough between, you know, family and work and exercise and um, responsibilities that you have, various categories of life, um, chores that need to be run and um, all those kinds of things. It's difficult to find a silent moment. So I want to take a walk down memory lane by show of hands this morning. Um, do you remember uh, the Nokia phone? Just real quick. Whoa, that's like a unanimous vote right there. How about the, the, the 1100 phone that over 250 million of those phones were made? They were absolutely bulletproof. Remember that phone? The Nokia little phone? Okay, let's go back a little bit in history. By show of hands, um, who of you used the pager? Ha, be, be proud of it. Be proud of it. This was like the most cutting edge technology. Now the phone on the wall could become on your, you know, on your hip and you'd have to clip it off. Doctors used to use them in the day. Um, anyone here not know what a pager is? <laughs> okay. All right, let's go back in history. What about the dial phone? Let me do a little gesture for you. This dial phone. There's more hands than the pager right now. That's incredible. All right, let's go back in history. What about the crank-up phone? Otherwise known as, let me look it up quickly, the magneto phone. Be proud. Come on, let's stick up those hands. Did you use them? For real? Switchboard on the other side, crackling, listening on your neighbor's conversation, all of that kind of thing. Let's go back in history. Anybody had a messenger on horseback? Just by show of hands. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a whole lot more notifications today than there were in those days, walking down memory lane. I looked on my phone right now, there are between 15 and 20 applications that are associated with notifications. And uh, maybe I should def define what a notification is. A notification is a message an email, an icon, or another symbol that appears when an application wants you to pay attention. That's what a notification is. And this is the attention that 
we find ourselves paying even before we listen to our boss or sometimes even listen to our wife. Amen, wives? Um, Notifications press on us. And in this theme um, of the passage here, rather in this chapter of this passage, there's a mini theme that runs through of sound, which I noticed in reading the passage over and over again. Sound or noise or listening is a little mini theme that exists. From the sound of God's word in the beginning to the sound of the bleating sheep or the lowing oxen, this is the range of sound that we hear about and this idea of listening emerges out of the text. Look at verse one, where Samuel says to Saul, God sent me, and there's an emphasis on the me there, to anoint you as king. And what Samuel was saying to Saul was, you may think you're this big shot warrior king, but God sent me, and you've ignored me, you've ignored God's word, but I'm the one that was sent by God, so God is speaking through me. And what he was saying was, you better listen up. Listen to what God has to say. And I just want to say as a side note, maybe that's God's word to you in the beginning of this chapter as well, to listen to what God has prepared for you through this chapter as we come to this table in just a moment. Saul heard, like many of us here, it kind of goes in the ears, but it doesn't really rest in the mind. That's how, and, and result in better behavior or action. The word for listen occurs eight times in the chapter, and in the Hebrew it means to, to hear, but not just with the ears. The Hebrew is implying an obedience to what is heard. You know how we, we speak to our kids and say, are these working? What we're actually saying is not, are the ears working? Because often our kids hear what we're saying, can repeat it back to us, but it hasn't really made that transition from the ears to the brain and then resulted in obedience. And that's what we're implying when we say to our kids, did you hear what I said? And that's what's implied here in this chapter as well. Did you hear what I said? The idea at the end, what the result of what, what our hearing needs to be is devotion to God, a behavior that has shifted, a, a loyalty that has shifted, an obedience and um, a faithfulness to God that emerges out of what we have heard, heard, ears to brain to behavior. I want to suggest that devotion, and I'm taking this out of the passage here, I want to suggest that devotion, devotion is bred in silence, and that this silence is a rare commodity in our day and in our age. Listen to some of these quotes. Jim Elliot, famous missionary, you can read about him um, in your own time, um, martyr for the faith, he said, I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize on three elements, on noise, on hurry, and on crowds. He goes on in that same uh, paragraph to say, Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. It's true. How about this? Uh, another quote by, by, by A.W. Tozer. God can be known in the turmoil of life. He can. In the busyness and the hurry of life, God can be known. But he says, he is better known. He is best known in the silence. Is what Tozer said. I'm constantly trying to prune my life. I don't know about you. Constantly trying to prune off things that are noisy and um, add busyness to life. But it's a constant battle. It's not something that comes naturally. It's something that has to be worked on almost every week of our lives. And the Lord's Supper, I think, is a time for us to be quiet. Um, today we'll have some, a little moment where we can be quiet and maybe a little music playing in the back just for us to ponder. Let's take advantage of that, where we can listen carefully to what God has to say to us that our lives might be marked by obedience and by loyalty and by faithfulness. 
that our, our lives might be marked by devotion after spending a few quiet times, a quiet moments with the Lord today. This chapter makes plain that God expects of us complete devotion. That is obvious. We, we sometimes read the life of Saul and we, we identify so much with it. We say, oh, that's such a big deal. Why is God being so harsh? Why is he being so strict? What we are to learn is that God expects complete devotion. And I believe this kind of devotion is bred apart from noise. One more quote, C.S. Lewis. I am the product of, and speaking of himself now, I'm the product, the, the result of long corridors, empty sunlit rooms, upstairs indoor silences, attics explored in solitude, distant noises of gurgling cisterns and pipes, and the noise of wind under the tiles, and also endless books. But the point of what he's saying is that I'm the product of quietness. I'm the product of quietness. Let's take to heart what God has said here so far. Rare silence breeds devotion. Number two, divine score is always settled. Write that down somewhere. Divine score is always settled. God's people had various um, enemies. We've been exposed mainly in this book to the Philistines, but now we're gonna be introduced to a new one, the Amalekites. The Amalekites. Interesting, if you go back in history, you'll find out that the Amalekites came out of Esau, um, Amalek was an off, an off, of the offspring of Esau, so do your Bible study there and you'll, you'll see um, God's promises coming true here. And uh, these had been a, th these peoples had been a, or this people had been a great uh, thorn, a big thorn in the Israelites' flesh for a long time. I remember when they came out of Egypt um, in Exodus for the first time, these were the first enemy to meet, the Amalekites. And they were dirty in their fighting, they were ugly fighters continuing to be a real pain, even after the conquest, there's just this ongoing headache of the Amalekites. We learned for 300 years, there was terror among the Israelites for this particular people. And there's no repentance, no sign of them turning away from being a niggle to them. But praise God, you know, he hears our, our cries, he hears our prayers, he listens to the pain of our heart. The psalmist even says, it's a, a very unusual verse, but he, the, the psalmist says that he collects our tears, God collects our tears, in a bottle. That's the, the compassion, the interest that God shows for your hurt. Be encouraged by that and be encouraged by this, that God always settles the score. God always settles the score. It's very hard for us to read these verses. When, when Peter read them earlier, um, it's the umpteenth time that I read it this week, but I just thought again, you know, how harsh are these words coming from God's mouth, you know? Let me show them to you again, verse three. It's hard to be that God's even speaking such words, but it shows us the seriousness of sin. Um, sin deserves right punishment. And, and without that kind of introduction, when I read this verse, it comes across quite strict and harsh. Now go, Saul, strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all they have. Don't spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, can you imagine? Ox, sheep, camel, donkey, the whole lot wipe them out from the mouth of God to Saul. I mean, there's one word that I would use to summarize that verse, horrific. Horror comes to mind, like that's horrific to even read of that kind of action. But just when we conclude that there's no escape for the wicked, that vengeance belongs to God and you can't mess with God without getting punished, when we conclude that he is just, he is right, and he is the judge that makes the decision, we begin to understand that there is a little hint of hope in these words. 
And the hint of hope in the horror, I mean, this is immense horror, but in the middle of it, there's a still hint of hope. The hope is this, that as God's children, God won't forget the wrongs that have been committed to us. This is the hope. God's not going to forget about it. God doesn't sweep it under the mat. There is record of the wrongs that have, have been committed against us as God's people. And we can respond when treated unfairly. We can respond with meekness, patterning our lives after Jesus, who was this big wrath absorber. I mean, he, could just, he would just face these horrific situations and be able to absorb that in, 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 in the grace that God had given him. We can do that in meekness, but we can do it in meekness confidently because we can trust that God will make wrongs right. That's our hope in the midst of the horror. No vengeance on God's enemies equals no deliverance for God's people. And so this vengeance on the enemy meant deliverance for God's people. God's enemies get the vengeance and God's people get the favor. And really the gospel is seen to start emerging out of the actions of the Old Testament here, that God has, God has worked for us through horrific circumstances of the cross and Calvary and other, and the defeating of his enemy. He has worked for us grace, and he has earned for us and bought for us favor. It makes me think a little bit. I can't really avoid. When I speak of, when I read of language like this of horrific judgment, it makes me really tremble inside. I can't avoid but think about hell. How about you? I think it's just the ultimate outworking of God's judgment and his vengeance against evil and the evil one. Divine judgment and justice. So I, I went to one of my favorite old-time scholars, um, J.R. Packer, and I was reading, just listening to him speak. And I mean, just off the cuff, you're so eloquent in describing hell. And so I wanted to share a few thoughts that I got from J.R. Packer with you. He described hell as a parallel destiny, how that all will be risen to life after death. Um, everyone will be, we are eternal beings, and so um, God, God breathed life into us in the beginning, and so we'll be resurrected to life, but the destiny of our life after the grave, after death, will be in one of two different places. For some, there will be life after death to be welcomed, is the way J.R. Packer described it. Fully aware, we're all gonna be fully aware, put it that way, fully aware. When I speak of that life after death, I'm not speaking about life as in rosy life, I'm talking about we are aware of our existence after the grave. And so some will be resurrected to life after death and will be welcomed, whereas there'll be others that, are, that experience life after death to be rejected. And I thought that was quite interesting in light of the, the tone of rejection that is, is explained in this chapter. Hell is therefore the negation of fellowship with God and with others. The negation, because we're not going to be with our buddies. I mean, that, that image of, of hell is absolutely incorrect according to what the Bible says. Isolation, aloneness in hell. So a, a negation of fellowship, a negation of pleasure, a negation of contentment. It's the one thing that I know in my Christian life I strive for the most to be content in every situation by the grace of God. And I mean, we sang that song this morning. I mean, I had to really carefully think about those words, you know, the, the wealth of the cross, the wealth of the cross. So I hope to examine those words a bit more now as it's a, a new song for us so that I can sing it with all my heart. But hell must be the negation of pleasure, the negation of contentment, the negation of rest, 
the negation of refreshment. Because heaven is described as a place where we will gain refreshment and rest after this life of, of sin and, and trial and, and torment. In hell, one will exist with a sense, according to the Bible, a sense of missing the greatest thing. Had it available, but then a missing of the greatest thing. Hell is a place where there is nothing to give us joy, Paco would say. In fact, he ends with, quite emotionally in describing hell. He, he says, you know, there are, no, there are no words, really, to describe how horrific hell is. It's, it's not a place that we like to talk about, not because we want to try and make it, the punishment lighter, but for Christians, we don't like to, to dwell there. It's too horrific to ponder and to consider. When Jesus thought about hell, and when Jesus spoke and taught about hell, all that came out of his mouth, was horrific. It really was. So in thinking about this, I, I learned that our sin is serious, and texts like this confirm that sin will be judged. Sin will be judged. Praise the Lord, we have opportunity to now deal with sin in the Lord's, Lord's table and what that represents. So let's get there quickly. Our, just refreshing your mind, rare silence breeds devotion, and divine score is always settled. I'd like to finish by talking a little bit about sin. And um, this comes naturally out of chapter 15 and it's logic. And that's where the, where, the, where the text would take us next, I believe. My third point, our sin makes no sense. And, and as, we, as we ponder sin for a bit, let's just consider how really foolish. In light of chapter 14 and 13, the word foolish has been used twice, two chapters. Let's consider how foolish our sin really is. And we're going to examine a bucket of little nuggets about human nature here. I'll give you them one by one. Number one, how you finish matters more than how you start. Let's just jot these things down. Ponder them. Prepare yourself for time around the table. Uh, maybe a time where we can say, Lord, this is my sinfulness. This is my nature. This is who I am, and I'm sorry for it. Please, would you forgive me? These are the things I want to confess. You know about them already? So I'm going to lay them out before you. I'm going to agree with you, God, that I am what this passage has told me I am. That's maybe what this Lord's Supper will present for you or represent for you today as you pray silently and quietly or with somebody a little bit later. Jot these few things down. How you finish matters more than how you start. Saul started quickly, got the soldiers together by God's command. So this was God's command. He acts. And then after that, he actually doesn't want to go beyond God's command. So he expels the Kenites. I thought that was quite kind. They were living among the Amalekites, and so he got this people group out of the way because God didn't say to eradicate those. So he was very careful to obey exactly what God had said. Good start, Saul, but he never finished well. I think of Paul's testimony right now out of my head. Um, I have fought the fight, and I have finished the race. Finishing is important, folks. Learn that about our, our spiritual lives. Starting doesn't matter as much as it matters, as much as finishing matters. Number two, sin is never private. It always has an effect on others. It always has an effect on others. Even the private sin that's committed in the private room behind closed doors with a computer screen, for example, that sin affects those around you. The language of verse nine explained that Saul acted and that the people followed. It's so amazing that when we, when we commit sin and we, we live a lifestyle of sinfulness, there are people that always are those around us that are affected. 
And the language in the Hebrew makes it even more clear that Saul was the one that acted, and the people then followed, and they spared Agag. Saul spared his life, and the people joined him in his disobedience. I personally was convicted in the area of parenting when I read that verse, how that I've been given this responsibility to be a model in the home of righteousness and Christ-likeness, and how easy it is for my children to to join me when I don't do exactly what God has commanded in His Word, as an example. Number three, God's expectation is full obedience. Not 99%, but 100%, not half measures. Saul kept what was useful when God said eradicate everything. God kept what was useful, good, and valuable, the Bible says. Seemed like a clever thing to do, let's be honest. These things will be useful, even if they were I don't believe this was Saul's heart, but his excuse was, I'll use them for sacrifice. I'll use them for religious purposes. Sometimes we like to do that as well. We try to negotiate with God. I'm, I'm going to, you know, this is something I'm going to reserve for, for you, God. I'm going to use that for you. Like, you know, in our spending of money, for example, I'm going to spend all this, you know, this money and all the things I buy, Lord, I'm going to use for you. We try to make excuse that way. God expects full obedience. Even though it seemed clever, it was not obedient. Number four, Sin is not merely making mistakes. I've heard often people say, you know, well, it's just a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes, right? No, no. Sin is to be handled seriously. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a misunderstanding. Verse 9 says clearly that Saul was unwilling. His full volition was engaged. He was unwilling to obey. Willful disobedience is described here. Verse 10, God regrets making Saul king. This is interesting. God knew what was going to happen. Of course he knew that. He knew what he was doing all the way through this, the process of Saul becoming king. He knew how it would pan out. But at the same time, God was personally grieved about making Saul king. God has feelings. I learned that in the text. Both can be true at the same time. God, and this is important, folks, theologically. Both can be true. God can know exactly what He's doing. God can orchestrate events in history. And He can, he can know the outcome of those events, but at the same time be wholeheartedly grieved by the outcome of those events. I hear the same language in Genesis. I don't know if you picked up on that, but the story of Noah. How the same Hebrew phrase is used. God was sorry that He made man. Why exactly was God sorry? And why was God sorry here? Well, God was sorry that he made Saul for, the Bible explains in 15, chapter 15, very clearly, he was sorry because Saul had turned from following God. Remember last week as we, we looked at chapter 14, God is looking for followers. He's not looking for winners. Remember, remember what you said there? God's looking for disciples. And God is sorry here that Saul did not follow as he was ought. Failing to follow is infinitely worse than making a mistake. That's the point I want to make. Failing to follow is infinitely worse than just claiming to misunderstand something and, and slip up. Now, failing to follow is disobedience and sin. Number five, sin will break the heart of your mentor. There are people that God has put in your life, in the church, and pastor can be one, and I can speak of many, many occasions where my heart has been broken this way. And so I identify with this text very much. Sam goes away and he's, he weeps for the whole night. He cries out to God. He's angry. 
there's obviously something that's going on. And I started to ask myself, why is he so distressed? He's not the one that's committed any sin at all. He's the one guy in history that's gone down in the Bible as the guy remaining faithful to the end, or Samuel. But see, the kingship of Saul was Samuel's life work. And if that fails, now his life's work has become worthless, right? All that I've got to show, all the measure of my effort has now come to naught. But the previous chapter just explained that what God's after is faithfulness. Nothing else that can be measured. And so he's, he's being victorious in what God had you know, raised them up to be, to be a faithful servant of God. We must remember that as well. But I want to tell you, it's heartbreaking when somebody that you, you're pouring your life into doesn't make it. It's heartbreaking. Our sin will, will break the heart of those that are mentors in your life, your, your parents and your leaders and elders in the church and pastor and others. Number six. Sin by nature is self-centered and selfish. Oh man, this book has really labored to tell us that. Samuel confronts Saul and a large portion of the chapter is this confrontation. And when he finds Saul to make that initial confrontation, what's Saul doing? He's building a monument to himself. I'm embarrassed at that point, reading the text. I'm just embarrassed, overwhelmed by embarrassment. He should have been building an altar to God is what he should have been doing. But instead, he's building a monument to himself. How selfish our sin is. Number seven, sin distorts our consciousness. This is something that many will find interesting here today. Our conscience can't be trusted. Even our, even our own senses, that's why I made this point. Our sin makes no sense. Because our senses are affected and our conscience is even affected. Saul's reaction is, I have fulfilled the word of God. Peter Peter emphasize that beautifully when you read it. I have. What are you talking about? God said I must wipe them out. That's exactly what I did. And we, we read in the text saying, how can you think that? Because his, his senses are affected and his conscience is even seared. There's an illusion in his mind that, that the, the animals now are, were saved for sacrifice, a cover-up. Hebrews 3 verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's tricky, man. Sin will put the will over your eyes. Sin is deceitful. Even a clear conscience is not a measure of innocence, according to what this Bible, this Bible text is saying. Let me say that again. Even a clear conscience is not a measure of innocence, according to this chapter. Number eight, sin shifts the blame. No, the people did it. Verse 15. I mean, Genesis comes to mind again. No, the woman did it. No, the snake did it. All this blame shifting, it's just a symptom of original sin that is inherited here generations later. We blame our parents. We blame our environment. We blame our government. We, it's never our fault, right? Number nine, sin is more serious than temporal consequences. A lot of people respond to invitations in church and they, they come forward. And when I examine their heart, oftentimes there are people that are coming forward to confess a consequence, and they are more worried about the consequence of their sin than they are of their disobedience to God. More worried about the consequence of their decisions than they are of their rebellion toward a holy God. And often what happens is that sin repeats itself, I've noticed. Because the real issue is never handled, it's just the consequence of the issue. The sinfulness is never really addressed in the heart. And I want to say, the temporal consequence is nothing compared to the seriousness of sin. 
by rejecting God, by turning from following Him is the issue here in this text. Not listening to His word, rebellion in the heart. It's equated here in verse 23 with idolatry. Ties in with the early chapters of this book as well. The rejection of God is the taking on of another. That's what happens. When we don't listen to God's word, we're saying, well, I'm going to listen to another. And oftentimes, it's ourselves. I'm going to prefer my own way over God's way is what's happening here, theologically. Sin is more serious than temporal consequences. That's nothing compared to our rebellion toward the Lord. And the table's here. The blood of Christ and the body of Christ represented for us as grace for us to consider as a solution to this. The last one. Sinners usually try to compensate with religion. Sinners usually try to compensate with religion. The people took the animals and they're going to use them to sacrifice to you, God. Throw religion under the bus here. But this kind of religion doesn't have any heart at all. There's no substance to it. It's just a, a tradition that's followed through. Like I've often heard said, well, you know, I've, I've been coming to church, pastor, like it's a, 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 like a tool to be used to manipulate God's grace. To make to make compensation for the wrongs in life. I'll just kind of balance the scales. That is other religious than Christian. Then the verdict is given. Samuel says, has, this is the climatic verse of the text, by the way, has the Lord as great a sac- has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, here's the point, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams on the altar, burning as a fragrance to the Lord. And the point is made, formal worship cannot substitute for an obedient life. It doesn't matter how many songs you sing, and how many quiet times you have, and how many eloquent prayers you pray, and all of those things can be listed along the same line. Unless the heart is invested in an obedient life is behind the formal worship We can never be a living sacrifice. And that's the point of the New Testament, isn't it? The fat of rams on the altar, that sacrificial thing points to the living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And that's the thing that pleases me, God is saying. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All the other things you do in worship, that's, that's immaterial compared to this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, the New Testament would teach. At the surface, our sin is not really a big deal. It isn't. We read this passage and we we say, oh man, God, overreacting a little bit there, aren't you? But at its core, sin is a rebellion punishable by eternal death. For it offends. And some people have a problem with the whole timing thing, you know. Eternal death, church, that's a long time to pay for just the short little life of sin. All thought it at some point, right? I mean, surely hell can't be that. That's a little bit extreme. But when we consider that our sin is a, an offense to a holy God who is also infinite, so infinitely holy, suddenly the eternal parallel starts to connect. Worthy of eternal punishment. When the, inf- the, the infinite nature of God's holiness has been that much offended. When we understand this, 
that the sum of our sin is in fact believing that God is not good, that God is not wise, that God is not powerful, then our sin makes no sense because God is good, amen? God is infinitely wise and God is all-powerful. Previous chapter made that very plain. It's best to start listening. So as we come to the, the Lord's Supper, I'd like to read a verse just by way of segue, and then I'd like to explain the good news in light of that news. I'd like to explain the good news. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Church, strive for it. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's where we're going. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are no naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I can't give account for you. No one's going to give account for you. You personally are going to have to give account to the Lord for your actions. So let's strive as a church to enter that rest of glory in heaven and not fall by the same kind of disobedience that we read about in chapter 15. As we come down to the table here, we're going to be doing a, we've, we've really enjoyed, our, our staff have talked about how we've enjoyed the, the self-service, you know, uh, Lord's Supper, and it just helps with the flow of our service and the timing, and so we're going to do the same today, but what we want to encourage people to do is to pray with each other. Every now and then, we encourage our people to pray, and if, you, if you're here alone and you don't feel comfortable, that's fine, pray alone, but if you can, pray with your spouse or your children or a friend, um, why don't you do that? Come and take the bread and take the cup at the same time when it's appropriate after I pray and uh, spend some time in quiet. That's the point, the silence. And as we do, I want us to be mindful of Jesus. It would be very inappropriate to preach a message like I've done and say amen and go home without this. So listen carefully. This is our meditation. This is our thankfulness. This is, this is what we are grateful for uh, as we take the, the Lord's Supper today. We are sinful. Enslaved to sin, enslaved to Satan, spiritually depraved and bent, religious, disobedient. These are the words we've used today to describe our sinfulness. But Jesus is holy. He is without sin. He, he did not sin. He's spotless. He's without blemish. He's 100% obedient. You get the point? When we can't be obedient and we, we disobey, there is one who represents us as a, a substitute, his name is Jesus, holy. We fall short from the standard of God, which is the, the law, the, the holy perfection of God in his person. Absolutely pure. We fall short of that. But Jesus, he fulfilled the law. He met the requirements of the law perfectly and without fault. In other words, Jesus was perfect. We are enemies of God, the Bible says. Separate from him, hostile, under wrath. That, that's why verses like verse 3 can be in the Bible. His, his anger burns towards sinners. That's how offensive it is. But Jesus, 
He initiated a visit. He bridged the gap. He, he came in his incarnation, bore the wrath of God. He abandoned the Father. He, he took the, the wrath and upon himself, all that burning fury upon himself on the cross and worked for us peace. We call that propitiation. He reconciled sinners to God and we are now adopted into a family. From being estranged to God, now we are in communion with Him as believers. The Bible says we are guilty, we are condemned. We, we, we deserve to pay the death penalty. Judgment is coming in the form of hell. Oh, it's coming. But in Christ, a sinner can be justified because He suffered for us in life and death. His blood, which, man, let's just look at it quickly. This blood represents our blood. This should be my blood in the cup. It should be your blood in the cup. His blood was poured out. It was poured out for the remission of sin. Substitution so that we might be justified. Complete, complete payment for sin in Jesus Christ. First Peter, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, that's the wealth we're saying about, not that, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's be mindful of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the reminder of the seriousness of our sin today. Lord, I trust you for these moments that lie ahead, just a few minutes, really. But Lord, could have an eternal impact for somebody. I pray that these moments would be a time for us to confess our sin and lean upon the work of Jesus, depend, trust in Him for salvation and for sanctification for holiness lord we bring our disobediences to you lord and we we confess the times that we have fallen short of your word haven't acted out in obedience 100 percent there's the the sound of bleating sheep and lowing oxen in the background of our lives father we bring that to you and we we, we pray for your blood to wash us clean thank you for your work on the cross Thank you for the significance of, of this table in light of chapter 15. Lord, where we, where we could not, because of our bentness, where we could not reach out to you or work our way toward glory, earn our salvation, Jesus stands as the one who would do it on our behalf. And the work is done. So we glory in the cross. We boast at the cross. We celebrate the cross. May this be the, the content of our prayers as we take this time to pray together with each other. Amen. Amen. As the music plays, won't you come forward and help yourself?